Welcome to the world of the Western esoteric tradition. Hello, friends and listeners. Welcome back to the Thor's Hermes podcast. Today is July 16, and we are bringing episode number 7 to you. My name is Rudolf, I am your host, and I hope your stay with us will be enjoyable. This episode is a bit different from the others that I have presented to you so far. As you have heard in the previous show, July is an extremely busy month for me this year, professionally. So, in order not to have you wait any longer for the next episode to appear, I decided that this episode will only contain the interview of today's featured guest, Californian author and independent metaphysician, Benabel Wen. Yes. Finally a woman as our guest, and I hope there will be many more to come. So there will be no news and no review section today, but they will of course return in our next episodes. As always, I would like to remind you to visit the Thos Hermes website www.thoshermes.com. That is T H O T-H-E-R-M-E-S dot com. There you can find all the information regarding this episode in the show notes and have access to all the previous exciting episodes and the related articles. Also, please visit the arts page on the website to see the work of our featured artist, Stuart Littlejohn. You can listen to Source Hermes podcast directly from the website or in an individual player app, but of course also on Blueberry, iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, Android and several other podcast apps listing Source Hermes. Also this time I will be very much looking forward to receive your feedback. You can contact me as always through the contact form on the website, via Facebook, Twitter or email. Or leave me a voicemail message via SpeechPipe from the web page. Here comes the interview. As probably most of you out there who are practicing the esoteric and the occult arts, the tarot has from the very beginning been an important part to learn and to practice for me. Also today, 
without being a real tarot specialist, I have a short tarot meditation and spread in my daily practice. And as I'm a book nerd at the same time, I have come across many very interesting books and other writings regarding that subject. This is how I came across Benebel Wen, when I got her book The Holistic Tarot in my hands. Somehow this book immediately stuck out of the huge amount of books on the tarot. I then continued by researching her website and that made me curious and so I wanted to interview Benebel and to present her to you, dear listeners. But this interview is not just about the tarot, but also about other esoteric subjects, about the bridges between the Eastern and Western tradition, about how to practice an important day job and be a practicing esotericist at the same time, etc. etc. As usual, this interview lasts for about one hour and in the middle we will take a short musical break. Come and join me to meet Benebel Wen. It is a great pleasure to welcome Benebel Wen here on Toth Hermes podcast. Welcome Benebel, great to have you with us here. You are talking to us from California this morning. That's right. Thank you so much for having me, Rudolf. Well, it's a great pleasure. It was a long wish of mine to have you here because I have been at first fascinated by your book, The Holistic Tarot, which we are going to talk about in a minute, and then also later by your second book that came out last year. But let's start with you, with you as a person, Benabel. I've discovered through your books and the few things I was able to read on your website about yourself, a personality that has many facets, I believe, because you have a profession that one would not put in immediate context with what you're doing with your books. You are a lawyer, if I am well informed. That's correct, yes. I don't think we have many lawyers in the occult world. And on the other hand, also your approach as an Asian American to mysticism and Tao, as we are going to talk later on, is also a very particular. So who is Benebel Wen? How would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Wow, that is a good question. It's funny. I it, It's the weirdest thing. The one question I seem to always struggle with is how to introduce myself. For example, you know how when you get on an airplane and you sit down and have small conversation with the person sitting next to you, they always ask you, so what do you do for a living, right? Yeah. I never know how to answer that question because writing these books and um, my occult studies is as important to me as my legal career. And I also do a couple of other side businesses. So I never really know what what to say. I guess I'll start from the beginning. Um, you know, I am Asian American. I was raised in a family and a culture that was very keenly attuned to, you know, psychic and supernatural phenomenon. So that's going to really govern the way I approach life. Mm -hmm. And then no matter what I do, even if I pursue a traditional 
career path like law because of that background. Just like, for example, if you are raised in an evangelical Christian family, your Christian faith will govern whatever you do, even if you go into politics, right? So similarly, because of that background that I have, I acknowledge and I'm self-aware enough to know that because of that, it does govern everything I do, including how I approach my career. So even though I went on to become a lawyer, I do find a lot of how I see the world in terms of being bilaterally attuned to the metaphysical energies, it does translate into my legal practice. So I guess that's who I am, somebody who has one foot in the physical realm and one foot in the metaphysical. That sounds very interesting. I have, over the last few weeks, had several interview partners who, in that respect also, well, let's say, they practice what they practice uh, in the occult world or in the esoteric world. And on the other side, they have a profane profession, so to call. And many of them would say, well, sometimes uh, it's difficult to mix them or to combine them rather, because people in my professional world should not know too much about what I'm doing. Now, this doesn't seem to be your case. You're very open about that. No. So I agree with them. It's very separate on the superficial level. Mm-hmm. So for example, you either know me by my real name or you know me as Benabel when there really right. is not a whole lot of mixing. The only people who know both are people who are super, super, they're like my best friends or my family. Yeah. So yeah. that's true. I agree with everybody else, all the predecessors. It's very separate. And then I find that um, in my legal world and my real life world, I cannot brag about my holistic sure. tarot or the I keep it very quiet. And so that's very separate. What I mean by it being mixed isn't on the superficial level, but more on the um, application level. So for example, in terms of manifestation or seeing or being attuned to the uh, occulted or metaphysical energies, just in terms of meeting people, legal work, uh, that kind of thing, I think is very mixed. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, (laughs) absolutely. Okay, okay. So you know what I'm saying. So it's very mixed on a very personal, private level, but superficially, absolutely, it's very separate. Yeah, so you feel like that as way. Personally, also, I experience it the same way. I'm in a profession that is rather public, and I wouldn't like to talk too much about it, what I'm doing on the weekends, so to speak. (laughs) But... I'm doing that throughout the day as well, just as you said, and it plays a role who you are in life and there you are also who you are professionally, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm so glad you understand. Yeah, it's it's mixed in my book, but uh, publicly it's very separate. Yeah, exactly. Very well understood. You said your family background also brought you into mysticism and the esoteric world. Was that at a very early stage, so through education as a child already, or did you personally find out later that that was your path and that led you into something? As early as I can remember, it was part of my world. And I didn't know it was paranormal. I didn't know it was not normal. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? I didn't know it was not mundane until I entered, say, you know, grade school and intermingled with other children and realized that, you know, other people do keep the dead and the living pretty separate and other people don't necessarily commune or have interactive relationships with deities and spirits. And so I think it wasn't until I grew up that I realized how integrated it was in my personal life. Um, But I think because as you 
you mentioned earlier, being Asian American, it's very difficult when you're younger, all you want to do is conform and you want to belong. So I concealed a lot of it and I suppressed a lot of, I rejected a lot of my heritage for pretty much my entire young life. But I still had that innate interest. I think it never leaves you if it's part of your heritage. I'm interested in the occult. So I actually gravitated more toward Western mystery traditions. That's how I learned tarot. So instead of learning my own heritage, I wanted to learn tarot and other more uh, Western mystical practices. And it wasn't until my adult life that I returned to embrace the Eastern heritage. Mm -hmm. That's a very interesting approach. You know, uh, this is a European podcast, so I'm based in Europe, but over 50% of our listeners are from North America, as I can see on all the statistics that I get. Uh, But also the Europeans, maybe it's very important to us that you explain what you just explained, because being Asian American, I think you, as you just said, you first need also to find your identity and you also just explained to me that in a very active way about going through the Western tradition and then finding your roots tradition. Could one name it like that? Yeah, definitely. So that brought us to tarot. And tarot is the subject of your first, to me, wonderful book, The Holistic Tarot. What brought you to tarot in particular? And what does it mean to you? Well, I've been exposed to tarot since a young age, I think uh, grade school, but not that I was an active practitioner. It was just I was interested in the occult. So in the uh, public libraries, I would always sit in the occult section of the library. And there will, of course, be at least one to two books on tarot. I'd pick those up. And so that's my first exposure to tarot. I was gifted my first tarot deck in junior high. And then from there, it was just, I think, because it is such a wonderful tool that brings together both your uh, creative side and also your analytical side that it was something I gravitated toward very quickly. And it was something I studied pretty intensely for a very long time. And um, because I think I can be very introverted, tarot was a great way for me to communicate with other people and just communicate, interestingly, socially with the world around me. What's your personal approach to it i mean many practitioners of the tarot take it as way they do the spreads and they read the cards and take it very directly intuitively there are others who approach it more through a cabalistic point of view with the values that come from the golden dawn tradition etc which side would you more belong to or is there any side for you is that is that the real distinction Hmm, I think let me start by talking about sort of my clinical approach and then my philosophical approach. So Mm -hmm. clinically, if you sat down for a tarot reading with me, I begin always with a signifier. I'll look into whatever uh, birth details you'll you'll provide for me. That's as accurately or as in-depth as I go in terms of casting a birth chart or a solar chart. So I'm very interested in drawing in a lot of Western astrology. Mm -hmm. And from the signifier, that's a very important point in my practice. And that kind of goes into the philosophy of it. I can get into that later. But basically, I do use the first operation of the opening of the key, no matter what. So even in like a light, fun, fluffy, fair reading, I still begin with the first operation of the opening of the key. It just becomes my tone is lighter and and fluffier and happier. But even in that reading versus a very in-depth, sentimental, serious reading, I still use the opening of the key. 
Right. And then I just sort of play by ear, depending on how long the professional reading setting is, or if I have a specific question or if it's a general inquiry, but I do sort of stick with that kind of approach. If you listen to the way I read tarot, it, it does generally, um, by and large, adopt a more classical approach. It does stay rather true to some of the so-called quote-unquote textbook card meanings. But then, I mean, I'm very open to being connected to the collective unconscious. So, for example, the actual literal images are signs and symbols that I use, and a lot of times that symbolism takes me in a very different direction from classical card meanings. So that absolutely happens as well. Um, I read my audience or I try to. So, for example, if it is a setting where the individual is not as interested in the esoteric, I try to stay very mundane in the way I uh, read the cards, right? I just talk about love. I just talk about your career. I just talk about what to do tomorrow and mm -hmm. keep it on that level. But if if I know that this person is going to be interested in connecting, uh, having a multifaceted connection, then I do bring in um, Kabbalistic aspects of the tarot. I think it's very difficult to study tarot to certain levels and not at some point dive into the world of the Kabbalah. I just think it's a little difficult to yeah. keep it terribly separate. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. So I, I do integrate a lot of, um, of, of, of Kabbalistic principles into the way I read the cards, uh, um, a lot of astrology as well. Absolutely understand what you mean, because it, it necessarily leads to the area where you're working in depth with that. But I like the approach you just explained to us, and I'll come back to that in a minute, uh, also about the title of that book, Holistic Tarot. But um, you were going to give us also the philosophical approach that you have. So I think we need to be understanding that uh, tarot can be different things to different people. And so uh, for me, when I wasn't ready yet to fully embrace a lot of the more occulted aspects of life, it was psychology. And it was comfortable for me to only stay within the realm of an atheistic approach and a psychological approach. And I think that shouldn't be judged when people do that. I think as I uh, progressed in my studies and was a little bit more open-minded, more tolerant, more receptive of what was going on around me, being more sensitive, you can't help but acknowledge that there um, is some other sort of uh, connection that the tarot can, can become. It does become essentially some kind of a gateway into a compendium of knowledge that does tend to transcend space-time, if you will. Mm -hmm. And so then you, you learn to, to follow that intuitive reception and that connection. And so for me, philosophically, tarot is a way of connecting into this compendium of knowledge uh, that transcends space-time, whether some people refer to it as the Akashic Records or whether it's a psychic phenomenon. I That part I don't know, but I do see it now as something that's a lot broader. It is connecting into some form of divine, and it does. I really understand a new definition for the word divination. And so now for me, a tarot reading is divination in the sense of connecting to a sense of divinity. Yeah. I can very well connect with what you're saying. Of course, the name of this podcast, Thoth Hermes, is also mm -hmm. a personal choice. And the tarot, as you well know, is often called the Book of Thoth as well. Mm -hmm. 
Unfortunately, I'm so far away from where you live that I never had the chance to experience a reading with you personally. So, would you like to give us a little uh, impression on how you do those readings? Are they doing individually? Are you doing... Uh, you just said you talked to your audience, so I assume there's also often more than one person at a time. And how can people get to you if they want to get the reading from you? I, I don't think I've ever done, well, I've done group readings, so there is an audience, but that's more, it's still a private group. Uh, right. I do, I do professional readings and in, in over the email, I do professional readings in person. A lot of times it is in fairs or in, in public settings that my publisher sets up. So it's, it's a little bit more, you know, commercial or professional. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, and so it just becomes like, you know, just, you know, sort of incidental to promoting my book. You give out free readings or you do readings as unfair. So that's really uh, how I how I approach it. But I do take on very serious in-person, in-depth sessions. I do that through email, through Skype, if they prefer. Just um, oh. And people who I'm close to will come in in person. So right. I do do professional tarot readings on the side. Right. So when if somebody wants to get the professional reading from you, they go on your website or how would they approach you? Oh yes, there. Uh, my website has a book a book a reading page, and so you can go on there, email me, and then we can get started. Okay, great. So I will also, of course, make sure that in the show notes that website and all those links are correctly posted, so people can go on the website of this podcast and find a direct link to Benabel Wen. <laughs> now let's talk about this book, the Holistic Tarot. I. I've read it in big parts and I was very impressed and what you were saying in the first part of this interview now uh, of course makes me understand a lot why this fascinated me like that because I find it a very how would I say that a very open-minded a very modern approach to tarot but on the other hand of course, there are so many books about the tarot and some of them or many of them take a very modern approach. But most of those books are then to me very superficial. And what I like about that book, and it's not a small book, it's quite a volume. It links on one hand that modern and easy and open-minded approach of, to the tarot to a background, a tradition, uh, a very deeply rooted feeling in me. So that's what I would be able to say about that book. But do you feel I recognize what you wanted to do? Or how would you see your book? I'm so happy you said that. That is, I mean, that is the nicest thing that anyone could say or describe about that book. I, I tried really hard to uh, honor the tradition and the legacy of tarot. I, I didn't want it to, I mean, it's, it's difficult to write a book and not have it be your point of view. So I have to acknowledge, of course, that innate bias. It is my perspective, well, right? Be, otherwise right. it would be boring, wouldn't it? <laughs> right. So it's, it's, it's clearly my perspective. I can't extract or divorce that from the book but at the same time I wanted to be very try to be a little bit more surgical and 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 understand other perspectives and try to take a more objective more academic perspective of tarot to show that this is tarot study you know it's not just you know how Benabel does tarot it's 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 understanding that there is this whole body of of writing around tarot that exists well before my time I see a chapter in that book, and, and I think it's a rather in the early part of the book, which talks about the theory of 
Um, oh, uh-huh. If uh-huh. I pronounce that properly, otherwise, please do correct me. Um, and we know, um, we, I think, esotericists have heard about key. Personally, to me, it was the first time that theory of key or the energy of key has been proposed to me in connection with the tarot. Is there any special reason for that? Is that in your personal cultural background, why you brought it up? I was very positively surprised by that. Uh, well, I, I personally say qi energy um, in Chinese is qi, and then so when we you know speak English, I just say qi. But I mean, I don't think the I don't think pronunciation matters too much. I included it because that's me. So that's why I said that it's very difficult to divorce the personal approach when you're writing a book on tarot. At some point in the book. I think you have to explain uh, why you think tarot works or, or the operational value of tarot, right? And so I, I set out a lot of the theories that exist before I do. And so, you know, you see the four, the Barnum effect, uh, there's mm-hmm. the idea of, self, of it being a self-fulfilling prophecy, yeah. mm-hmm. right? Then there's the really magical ideas where it is, it is, it's a form of magic, you know, and, and that's another uh, approach to why tarot works. But I needed to, at some point, express my, my personal view why I think it works. And so for me, that would be this idea of unseen energy and it's the unseen energy that uh, makes it work. How It's a little bit like the internet, maybe based on my understanding of the internet, where you have sort of this unconscious mind, but you're connected to every single other mind and every single other energy or, or sentient consciousness in this universe. And this web or this network becomes a collective unconscious and this web or unified collective unconscious forms a singularity and that singularity does like I said it's that body of knowledge I was talking about that transcends space time so tarot becomes this intriguing technology that allows us to use the personal unconscious connect into that web that network of collective unconscious which is my explanation for why i might be able to for example read tarot for you even though i don't know anything about your life or your background or who you are i can still tap into your personal story through Mm -hmm. this energy this network this collective unconscious that was just my explanation for why tarot works that i felt like i should include yeah. So that's what you first said uh, just a couple of minutes ago. Somebody calls it the Akashic Record or the Collective Consciousness. And so that's that web you are talking about, right? Right. I, in, in my world. Yes. yes, exactly. No, it's clear. I think all occultists, when they talk, they need to talk about their own world and the, the names they put on things. Because mm-hmm. so many things, I believe, are so subjective it's hard to give them a name which in, for example, legal language would work, yeah. right? I mean, yes. but even even professional languages sometimes do not correspond with what common language would use the word for. I think you might experience that in your legal business as well. Yeah, yeah, I think that's an interesting point. When you, when Because of the professional background I come from, for me, language is very important. You know, there are legal implications to the word that you choose to use. Exactly. And I think having that kind of professional experience, I, I do it, whether it's conscious or unconscious, does translate into my world of magic and the way I approach occultism. Let's get back to the tarot then. Holistic approach. What is for you, how would you define in, in a few sentences a holistic approach to the tarot? 
so this is interesting. Um, my when I first wrote the book uh, in my vacuum and uh, sent it out for uh, submission, uh, submitted it for publication. It was called Tarot Analytics. So the thesis of my book was to actually use a lot of the analytical approaches I use as a legal practitioner and apply a more analytical way of learning tarot and understanding tarot. So, for example, a very sort of funny way is in in legal reasoning, you have IRAC, which is issue, rule, uh, application or analysis and then conclusion. And so I wanted to apply that to how you read tarot clinically just as a beginner to learn tarot in a very comprehensive, integrative way, right? And so my thesis was an, was an analytical approach to tarot. And so I call it tarot analytics. And then my, my publisher didn't like the title and thought uh, tarot analytics would not sell. <laughs> so they changed the title to Holistic Tarot. And then we sort of did a very cut and paste job in the book. Every single time I mentioned my thesis, my thesis of tarot analytics, we just took it out and added in Holistic Tarot. <laughs> in, <laughs> in the contents, it still says tarot analytics dot holistic approach <laughs> yeah yeah so um and so the, I, it's very hard for me to explain what holistic tarot is is because it's it wasn't my idea you know what i mean <laughs> i see what um, you mean yeah yeah uh, but i think it probably the editor meant that analytics sounds very reducing but it, it's not at all because the way you do it uh, again, I'm not wanting to, to do any compliments here, but it's it's really a fascinating book to me because it is so clear and so well structured. What really I liked as well, not only that it is a course that really leads you step by step into the tarot, but also leaves you enough layway to, to, to go where you want, but you also have some supplementary material on your website, which I really need to mention here, that can the serious practitioner, the serious student using your book, give supplementary ideas, models, etc. How do you how did that all happen? I wanted to create a comprehensive tarot course that um, did account for, how do I put this? I don't know how to say it in a politically correct way. <laughs> a lot of times you see tarot being taught in a way that's, it skates the surface of what tarot is capable of. Mm -hmm. it, it's a little bit um, affirmations. You have the power. You're wonderful. We all love each other, love and light. Mm -hmm. And I, I think I wanted to to sort of showcase the depths of tarot and try to do that in a mainstream approach. So I still wanted to keep it mainstream and have it be something palatable to someone who has no background in tarot, but at the same time, truly convey the depths and academic rigor of tarot. So that was my objective for the comprehensive course and the supplementary material. Right. Now, maybe this is my European way. Me in Europe are maybe less, a bit less sensitive to political correctness, so I might want to put it like that. I And correct me if I'm wrong. Once again, I get the feeling that you are giving here the approach to tarot for almost anyone, but the one who has ears and eyes and senses open can go much further, see the darker sides, see more about it, but still the one who wants to stay on the surface will be happy. Is that the right way to put it? 
Yes, in plain sight. It's about having knowledge in plain sight and having, it's the philosophy of making, having equal access to knowledge. You know, I want it, I I don't want secrecy. I want this idea of equality where anybody can have access to esoteric knowledge. But then at some point, it really becomes your own path. I can't lay out everything for you. I can sort of give the foundation and then the individual needs to take it as far as they need to go. But I wanted to lay out a groundwork that if somebody wanted to go very deeply with it, they have the access to go yeah. deeply. Tarot. Yeah. Yeah. So I would like encourage anyone who is rather new to tarot, for example, and who would like to uh, get a first approach to that, to read that book and to use that book, because it really helps you to find your individual way through its analytical and holistic approach. Thank you. And I think one of the interesting things is uh, I can often see who, how far people want to go with the book, just mm-hmm. in terms of whether or not they read the end notes. I find <laughs> if you do not read the end notes, then you do. I acknowledge that the book can be very superficial. It stays at a very superficial analytical level of tarot if you don't read the end notes. Yeah. But once you read the end notes, I think a very different world of tarot opens up. That's a good point. And talking about the end notes, I personally, I admit I haven't read all chapters. I didn't <laughs> have time okay. to do that for our interview. <laughs> but I did always jump to the end notes w- within the chapters at, at each time when Benabella wants to ma- refer to that end note. I jumped there. And that's, I think, at least to me, it was a very active approach to immediately get the depth in each chapter right away. We are now taking a short break in this interview and are going to listen to a piece of music. When I asked Benabel if she had any specific wish for the music during her episode, she did not really come up with a piece or a musician, but wrote the following to me. How about Paganini? He allegedly sold his soul to the devil so he could become a renowned violinist. Well, I have not chosen Paganini for today, but rather a recording of a terribly talented young woman whose videos have taken YouTube in storm over the last few years. And when you listen to this very young French girl who goes by the name of Tina S., she very much reminds me of Paganini. But I don't think that Tina has sold her soul to the devil, She is just bloody talented. Listen to the music from a video that has gone viral and had over 10 million downloads. Tina S. playing her very special cover version of the third movement of Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata on her electric guitar just accompanied by drums.
Tina S. Interpreting Ludwig van Beethoven The third movement from his Moonlight Sonata Just amazing. And now we will return to our interview with author and independent metaphysician Benabel Wen. Lately, about I think 10 months ago, Benabel, you issued, you published a second book, which I would like you to start talking about at first, which opens us a completely different world of the esoteric, of the occult practice. What would you call the practice anyway? Would it be esoteric or occult or mystic? Or what's, what, how would you name that world you're working with? I think whether or not I like it, it, it does definitely enter the realm of the occult. And it is a form of esoteric Taoism. And I try to make that separation pretty clear in the beginning. So the second book is The Tao of Craft. Yes. And it's a book on sigil crafting in Eastern esoteric traditions or Taoist traditions specifically. So it's uh, food talismans. Now, Taoism itself, it's very hard to pin down or define. A lot of the Western world sees Taoism as a philosophy, which it absolutely is. And it's this idea of a nature-based philosophy and living in harmony almost in submission to the natural phenomenon. Now, esoteric Taoism is sort of, it, there's this yin and yang, tenuous yet harmonious balance between exoteric Taoism, which is Taoist philosophy, and esoteric Taoism, which is occult Taoism and Taoist magic. Now, in the realm of Taoist magic, it's not necessarily about having an uh, a, uh, a it, it is a har it's harmony with nature, but it's having a more proactive approach to the natural world and having and, and it's about man ascending to having control or having an interactive communion with heaven and earth. And so it's very different in in a sense philosophically from uh, Taoism as an exoteric practice. And I try to make that clear that there is this tension between the two. So the book is about ex, uh, esoteric or occult Taoism, not necessarily Taoist philosophy. Yes, I think that's a very important point. And as you said, you make it also very clear in the first chapter of that book. I would even challenge you a bit more on that very question because I get the impression the way I understood what you were explaining in that first chapter that this difference between exoteric Taoism and esoteric Taoism also exists in other western philosophies so well let's take Christianity I think the day-to-day -day approach that many Christians have is a very exoteric Christianity But of mm. course, there exist on different levels. The, the, the Catholic Church would never accept the work. There are occult parts of Christianity, but I believe there are, and they are esoteric. There is es esoteric Christianity. Can one compare those Western exo-esoteric philosophies to the difference of exo- and esoteric Taoism? Is that a similar difference? Yes. Absolutely. It's, it's very similar. It's the same. I mean, I see that as well, where you, you know, you have sort of the, the exoteric, uh, Judeo Abrahamic faiths. And then of course you have Christian mysticism, mm -hmm. you have, um, Kabbalah, you know, Kabbalism. And so there is, or the hermetic Kabbalah. And so Rosicrucianism as well. And so you definitely, definitely. see that. 
um, you see that 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 sort of dichotomy appearing in the West, and I think it's sort of a universal um, a universal phenomenon. Anytime you're talking about religion and working with energies that are related to the divine. Yeah, I agree. For our listeners who might not be so aware of of that Sigil tradition, that Eastern Sigil tradition, I take the name of one of the sub-chapters of your book as a question to you now. What is a food talisman? Food talisman is based on the idea that um, when man invented writing, the idea that writing became a magical tool, a magical technology in and of itself. And so there's this old philosophy um, in, in the Chinese realm of thought where when we first came up with writing, uh, the demons shook with fear. And the reason the demons shook with fear is because now through the technology of writing, man could appeal to heaven and commune with the heavenly energies and could also control the demons in the subterranean world. Mm -hmm. So there's this idea that writing and words is quite magical. And food talismans is basically a form of spellcrafting that is heavily reliant on the art of writing. Yes. That's sort of a summary of food talismans. That tradition is a very old tradition. In your personal background, did you have in your family when you were a child or a youngster, did you have personal experience already at that stage with food talismans? Yeah, absolutely. I think in Taiwan, it's very much integrated into um, like a holistic approach almost to to healing and to to manifestation. So there's this idea of, yes, you should be working very hard, for example, to study for an exam. And if you're trying to heal, you know, you're sick, you go to a doctor, of course. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it's a dual prong approach where if um, where the limitations of the doctor end, that's when you try to appeal to the magical realms. And so there's always this bilateral, again, that 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 approach where you try to use within the uh, scientific limits that we have, the scientific capabilities we have, then add on to that sigil crafting food talismans. So yeah, growing up, food talismans has always been a part of my life. I've always been sort of, you know, they've been thrusting, oh, here, take this to the exam room. You know, if I have a, a final exam, right? They oh, take this and put this in your shoe. I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, they're going to like see it and they're going to call me cheating. And like, no, 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 just put it in your shoe. You know, so it's always right. been sort of part of my life. Right. Um, or if I'm sick and for some reason the doctor can't come back with a diagnosis oh here you know drink this I'm like what you can't drink water you can't drink paper you know but they're like just drink the paper you know? so it's always been kind of a part of my life but I didn't understand just how deeply rooted in my heritage and ancestry it was till I did the research the academic part is when I actually gained appreciation for food talismans right of course Before we go back to that and into that book, I need to tap into your wide knowledge because I'm fascinated by all those things that you know about, also those bridges between the Western and the Eastern traditions. Writing as magic, that's something that in the general Western tradition, I wouldn't say it's gone lost. There are, of course, parts of it. And also, for example, in the Jewish religious tradition, when you put your 
sorrow onto a piece of paper and bring it to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem or in the Golem, if you remember the tale of the Golem, where the rabbi put those magical words on a piece of paper and put it into the mouth of that uh, clay person he he built. That's what, what awoke the clay man into a being who executed the orders of, of the rabbi. So the word and the writing as magic does exist in the West, but it's a bit lost, I would say. Do you know anything about those reasons? Is there any, any, anything I can pull out of you, of your knowledge? Yeah, no, I don't know if the uh, if I phrased it correctly, but Sigmund Freud was this, I hope it's Sigmund Freud. I always get it a little bit confused between him and Carl Jung when I do quotations. No uh, but I, I think it was him who said, in the beginning, there were words and magic. I, I do find that in the, in the Western mystery traditions, um, words is very much considered a, a element to magic. I just don't know if we declare it in, in such explicit terms. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I think, you know, when we do incantations, uh, prayer, I, I think even, well, I guess that's not writing. You're right. Never mind. Um, no, but sure. It's the same, the same idea. Yeah. And sigil crafting. I think I, th I I do see it as part of the Western mystery traditions. People, um, for example, integrate a lot of they're very sigil reliant when you're looking to connect to the angel realm or the demon realm. Yeah. I, I don't know too many people who who practice that without some form of sigil crafting. Do you no, mind sure. saying? You're quite right. But what I find interesting, and that's exactly where I see. The difference at the same time, the common approach when the Western tradition uses sigils, a sigil is a kind of symbol, a symbolic writing. It's not using language writing for magic. It's an own language. And correct me if I'm wrong, but in the sigils that the, the Fu craft uses, it starts, of course, because the, the, the Asian writing is a pictorial writing at the start. So the sigil and the word is much more connected in the Eastern tradition than it would be in the Western tradition. Well, first, there's many different forms of, uh, there's many different schools of food talisman craft. Mm -hmm. So there are schools where it's completely illegible. It, it sort of resembles Chinese writing, but it's absolutely not Chinese writing. It does become okay. its own language. That's definitely one school. So I want to sort of make sure all of the different uh, approaches in food talismans are accounted for. Mm -hmm. My personal practice, you're correct in that my personal practice does rely more heavily on script. But even then, so Chinese writing, Writing has evolved over the years, right? Sure. You have the Chinese oracle bone script from um, before the before Christ era, the first dynasties, and so that's actually the type of Chinese writing I'll use in magical craft. It's not actually the um, Chinese I would write in everyday life. It's the traditional form of the characters. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it evolved into traditional Chinese. Then communism came in and Chairman Mao created simplified Chinese, which is a totally different language system. Well, not totally, but you know what I mean? So there's different evolution, evolutionary periods of the Chinese script. Now, in magical writing, most people, by and large, are going to be using the oldest form of traditional Chinese script. And I think the reason it's a little closer connected than the West is like you pointed out, if you write the word horse in Chinese, it kind of looks like a horse. If you mm -hmm. use the word 
bird, it kind of looks like a bird. And even when you write the word witch, the idea of witch or shaman, the character itself, in writing the character, it becomes magical because you're drawing one line to symbol, symbolize heaven, a line to symbolize earth, a line to symbolize man, and man connects the two interact. So like even the, the, the process of writing the character is magical almost because you're you're thinking about how it symbolizes etymologically the magical intentions and it of course demands a lot of awareness at the moment of writing because that's Mm -hmm. when you put the signification into the symbol don't you Exactly. Yes, exactly. So I think it's when I write the word um, heaven in English, I, I don't think I necessarily have that intention of connecting to heaven. Exactly. But when you write the word in, in Chinese, um, if you understand the etymology, you're automatically, even if you know nothing about magic, automatically just having etymolo- etymological understanding of the word, you're already sending into it intentions of connecting to heaven. I don't know how better to explain that, but that's my best way to explain it. I think it's a very clear way that it okay. explained it because, well, at least it, I understand, I believe I understand very well what you mean. Okay. <laughs> so... There are so many techniques and many uh, tools in the book that you describe, so I, uh, we couldn't be possibly talking about all of them. And we shouldn't, because people should go and buy the book and read it. But if you gave us two or three examples for tools or techniques that maybe are very special to you or your favorites or you think are very interesting for somebody who starts getting into that craft could you give us two or three examples of application if you want um one that i don't know if it's easy but it's easier to understand because i think a lot of people who are also western occult practitioners i've noticed also have some foundational understanding of the i ching the i ching book of changes so um if that is a divination system that really resonates with you what i like to do is uh, you cast an i ching divination and then the results is something you can then work into magic to sort of ensure the result or to change the result You know, so um, after the divination, you can either if you like the divination to sort of ensure the the outcome and make sure you stay on course, use the actual um, hexagram or use the two trigrams in some uh, creative way to create a sigil that helps you to ensure that result. Or you can actually look at the 64 hexagrams in the book, find the one that most expresses the intention you seek to manifest and create a sigil using that. Um, that would be the easiest, I say easiest, if you don't read and write in Chinese. Mm-hmm. Right. I may maybe take two or three that jumped at my eye when I read the book. One, maybe because that's very close to my personal practice, also was about breathing. So is <laughs> breathing uh, uh, just one possible tool or is that a very important part in the practice? You know how when you talk about magic in the Western traditions, what you say is important or not important, it gets controversial because every single uh, tradition, every single practitioner has different opinions on that, right? Uh, So uh, (laughs) I would say that historically it's very important. There's a lot of traditions where they teach forms of meditation and qigong and uh, 
sigil crafting and meditation are all sort of interlaced, there aren't that many people who practice one and not one of the others. Like it becomes an integrative practice and it's holistic in that sense. So there's this idea of when you want to connect heaven, earth, and man, and I'm using heaven and earth and man because that's the Trinitarian principle that manifests energy, you know, in, in uh, occult Taoism. So to create that nexus, to connect or to commune with, for example, angelic realms or demonic realms, you have to first create a nexus where um, the fabric of the physical realities in some way pierced through or weakened or, or opened up so that you can have that connection with the other realms. And in doing so, it does have to become almost in, you know, like a complete head to toe experience where you do use elements and correspondence. And, and astrology, of course, but then breathing is a way for you to adjust and change your consciousness so that your consciousness is either elevated or reduced in a way to connect to the vibrational frequency of the realm you're trying to connect to. So if you think of it from that philosophical point of view, then breathing is very important because breathing is the way you change your consciousness. Yeah. I understand that you are quite right about what you were just saying. I had to laugh because there is an old joke saying 10 occultists have 15 different techniques and they believe that all 20 are wrong. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, there wasn't one very particular technique which I found fascinating. And personally, I, at least in that way, have not seen in any other tradition that was drinking uh, the the dissolved paper sigil that's uh, a very a very archaic way of using the energy at least to me it made a very strong impression i think if i recall correctly i think i even wrote in there i don't really love this practice i think i, I like inserted a personal opinion <laughs> okay, there we are two persons <laughs> are having two approaches <laughs> So I'm I'm personally not a fan of that, and I, I don't do it myself. I try not to encourage it in other people, but I don't think you can write a book about talisman crafting in the Taoist tradition without mentioning that, because it is undeniably, historically, a big part of food talisman crafting. Mm -hmm. There's this idea of writing the, you know, the magical sigils onto paper and then dissolving the paper in water and then either drinking it with a glass of water or putting in alcohol. It just basically drinking the dissolved uh, sigil yeah. Yeah. so that the yeah. magic becomes like a pill it's like taking a pill i understand logistically why it makes sense like you take a pill to heal yourself when you, mm -hmm. you want to take medicine so i think i understand why there's this idea of treating a, a, a sigil as a pill um i think i'm from a more modern school of hygiene and so i don't like drinking stuff and uh, to cite you from the book I, I mean first i you're absolutely right that's what you wrote that you didn't like <laughs> it you were much nicer you said i do not subscribe to the method but <laughs> you said if in the book if i may cite you you say if drinking a few sigil resonates with you be sure you use paper and ink made from ingestible plant extract <laughs> and that most importantly does not contain lead or other toxic chemicals well so please observe that listeners if you do that mm -hmm. one more question about that you also describe what one should wear for the practice how one should behave prepare etc that's a very strict approach which i can understand i'm 
I'm doing a lot of ceremonial magic myself, and uh, that's part of my practice. So I, that strictness is not stranger to me. How important do you think for Fu sigil magic, for the Fu craft, is that strict approach? Is it a tradition which leads you there, or is it just a tool for the first approach? When you master it, you can get rid of that. Or what is it for you? I think that's a really hard question to answer. I'm and the reason, <laughs> right, the reason I think it's hard is because the short answer for myself, and again, I think it's because I come from such a modern sensibility, mm -hmm. is no, it's not important. The reason it would be important for somebody like me is because it's honoring my heritage. It's There's this idea of connecting to ancestry. This is, it, it's, it's a form of honor, you know what I mean? It's a form of respect and paying homage to how this would have been done uh, by my ancestors Absolutely. and so there is that there's that connection to ancestry there there's this very deep connection to to heritage that i think is very important and if you're talking historically about uh daoist magic it is a very liturgical liturgical um uh, approach you know it's a very liturgical tradition where ceremonial magic is very much integrated into the consciousness of daoist magic it's very strict in terms of you have to wear this the clothing has to be made in this way sewn mm. during this particular lunar month, this moon, this heavenly stem and earthly branch, like it's very, very specific. And mm -hmm. so to take, take that out of my book isn't doing justice to the legacy of Taoist magic. And so I wanted to talk about that just from, well, this is, if you observe Taoist magic through the ages, you're going to see this. So I have to talk about it. Do I think the 21st century practitioner of Taoist magic needs to put on this, you know, golden cone hat and like the dragons? Like, I, I, I don't think so. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's necessary. Um, I think the reason we do liturgy and ritual is because it changes the consciousness. It's the same idea as right. breathing. The objective yeah. is to change your consciousness. And how you do that is really an individuated process. If you need, you know, the whole bells and whistles, and that's not to be, you know, condemned. If you need all of that sort of liturgy and ritual and ceremony to take yourself to that other consciousness, I think you should do it. I, I don't see anything wrong with that at mm -hmm. all. In fact, it's honoring the legacy of Taoist magic. Mm -hmm. But if you don't need that, and you actually, it, it has a, a, you know, a detrimental effect where you feel funny when you do it, you know, you feel kind of goofy when you're wearing a, a big yeah. cone hat and a dragon feather on your then don't do it or if it's just too complicated to get the hat and the, and the, <laughs> and, the and the robe and stuff right so that yeah. might also be deterring right right yeah yeah no i understand what you mean i think my personal approach to that and i just wondered if the approach in the eastern uh, tradition is similar is that it might help you to start with, you know, when you say take a wand to do or or a, or a dagger to do this and that. Maybe that's just a prolongation of your hand or of your finger in the first place, which helps you to to by honoring the tradition to get into something. But then when you start feeling your own energy entering in into the practice, then you can get rid of those things because you are. It's just a tool to, as you said, to change the consciousness. And there is, to me, the second approach. You said deterring. Mm -hmm. I would like to refer to something you said in the first part of our interview. We were you were mentioning the the secret, and you 
didn't like the secret part of it, which I understand because you want to be magic and mysticism open to anyone who is genuinely interested, if I understand you well. Mm -hmm. And through those, through those overloading with tools and ritual and tradition, one can also deter through putting a secret veil above it. I would like to translate secret rather with silence, and I would like to have your take on that. Um, secret doesn't mean to me hide it from the world so that no one else can get the knowledge. But silence to me means do not talk about things A, you are not sure what you want to say about, and B, do not talk about things when you have nothing to say. And both creates a different kinds of consciousness. So now to you, how do you feel about secret and silence? I think sometimes silence is giving equal access to information. Sometimes when you speak, you're obfuscating the truth and you're making it difficult for some people to access the truth when you mm. speak too much. So I absolutely see a difference between secret and silence. Right. Absolutely. I think you put, like a good lawyer would do, you put my, many words in one sentence, which exactly brought it to the point. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> now, what new plans do you have? Are there any projects, Benabel, that you would like to talk to uh, our listeners and to me about any upcoming books, any new general projects uh, from the esoteric and the cold worlds? Um, so I'm currently teaching a course and it's an online class that you can have access to all the time. It's through the Tarot Summer School and it's at the Tarot Readers Academy. It's called Tarot and Shadow Work. But what it's really about is it integrates uh, Taoist magic where I use food talisman crafting and teach you how to do that and also qi energy cultivation breathing techniques that you were talking about earlier, uh, integrated with tarot to manifest goals or to sort of adjust uh, your mentality so that you can empower yourself. It's a course that I hope people will take. It, it integrates all of the other books that I've written in a w comprehensive way. Do we find that course on the website where you present your books and your teachings? Yes. Um, if you go to benabelwen.com under uh, courses, I have some free courses, but there's the, there's a link to the tarot and shadow work course that takes you to the tarot summer, the tarot readers Academy. And it's being taught through the tarot readers Academy. Yeah. I'm going to make sure we'll have a, we'll have a link also on my webpage directly to that course. Oh, Any cool. new book projects? I have a couple in the works. So I finished a book on Western astrology. I just don't know how I want to organize it and, and send it out because it's thousands of pages. It sort of integrates um, Hellenistic astrology. It's actually larger than holistic tarot. So logistically, you can't publish it as one single book. But I don't know if you want to split into ten. So there's the logistical organization issue, issue about what to do with thousands of pages of you know medieval astrology text. So I haven't figured that out yet. I also have um, a book on feng shui that's in the works. So, mm -hmm. Ooh, Very interesting. Well, I hope that astrology book will come out sometime <laughs> soon because I would be very excited to see the same type of approach, as you just said, that you gave to the tarot also yeah. in astrology, because I think the plethora of books that are around there would be, they need well an addition with some structuring. And as you seem to be somebody who is able to structure huge amounts of knowledge into 
into pieces that are digestible and that make sense, I think that could be a very, very interesting approach to astrology. So do let me know whenever it'll be ready, because I would love to let our listeners know through the website and my news sections that it's coming out. Well, thank you. I have a final question for you, Benabel, which might be a bit difficult. I don't know. Maybe it's easy for you, but it's interesting to our listeners. I know that type of question has been asked several times through our feedback and so on. Um, the Eastern tradition and the Western tradition. There are people when they're talking about tradition and it might even be smaller bits and pieces that Eastern and Western, they say there are parts of the tradition that cannot be understood or practiced even if you are not part of that community. Even Rudolf Steiner said that he wanted to learn the Western tradition first. There is so much to learn. That's why he split with Helen Blavatsky. Well, I won't give you my personal opinion on that. I want you to reply to that. What would you think? Can somebody who has grown up in a completely different tradition learn enough about another tradition to achieve the same kind of energy efficiency or same kind of personal development or the same kind of consciousness awakening if he is not from that community? I think first, um, it depends on the tradition. Like I'll, I'll answer it in two parts. So mm -hmm. first, it depends on the tradition. So for example, there are certain traditions, for example, Norse pagan traditions, uh, voodooian traditions that I, I do believe that there are um, heritage and community aspects to it that one must honor. And so if the native practitioners of a particular tradition intend or express a particular point of view about that tradition and who may or may not practice it in depth, that's something I think we should honor. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of Taoism, in as a heritage, if you, if you truly understand the history of Taoism, it's the native religion to China, but it has always been eclectic. The whole idea of Taoism, one of the biggest jokes is that you can't define Taoism. And the mm. reason is the very nature of Taoism is that you, Rudolph, will achieve Tao or achieve connection to divinity in a different path than I will. Sure. And so the idea of Taoism is to utilize philosophy and teachings from the natural world world to find that path to achieving Tao. And so in, inherent in Taoist magic is the idea that no two paths are alike. And it is very eclectic. When you look at Taoism, another joke is, so what's the pantheon? What's the Taoist pantheon? Because you see a lot of Buddhism, you see a lot of Hindu, Hinduism, mm -hmm. uh, Shintoism. And then whenever the Chinese diaspora leaves the mainland and integrates with its new cultures, it, it it takes a lot of the new culture and puts it into Taoist magic. So, for example, because evangelical Christian and Christian missionaries have been a long part of the Chinese history, there are brands of Taoist magic that integrate uh, Catholicism and Christianity. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's, I mean, it's a minority practice, but it's definitely a practice you have to acknowledge exists. And so because of the eclectic fundamental nature of of Taoism, I do believe people from any background can master Taoist magic. 
but it's unique to Taoist magic and the Taoist tradition. I don't think you can translate that philosophy into other traditions around the world. Yes, yes, I see. Did I miss that or did you want to have a second part of the answer? I think that was the second part. Okay. The first part was the first part was the answer isn't like um, a blanket yes or no because every tradition is different, yes, right? So you have course. to yeah. you have to take it down a couple more steps of inquiry and and ask about that native tradition and figure out what are the intentions and sort of the traditions in that school of magic and honor those traditions. And if the second prong is well, if the question is being presented to Taoist magic, well, in the specific tradition of Taoist magic, historically and looking at the legacy of it, absolutely anybody from any background can master it. But just like any school of magic, it is esoteric. When I say anybody can master it, I don't mean any Joe Schmo off the street can yeah. become a Taoist ma you know, master of magic. I think there's still that work that needs to be done, but anybody from any heritage can absolutely choose to do the work and master it. Yes, that's a very good point. Thank you. Well, Benabel, is there anything you would like to add? Any point that we missed? Any point that would be important to you that we did not talk about? No, I think you've covered so much of what I wanted to talk about. So thank you. Well, then, thanks so much, Benabel, when for this wonderful interview, for this hour in our company, and for all the knowledge and in-depth thought with very clear words that you gave to us. Thanks so much for your time and being with us today. Thank you, Rudolf. Yes, thanks so much, Benabel, for sharing all of this with us. I don't know about you, but I got many new ideas and fresh approaches to the tarot from her in the book, the website, and in the interview. I hope this will also be the case for you. And the Tao of the craft was a complete discovery for me. This is what is so exciting about doing this podcast. With each episode I learn, from producing it, from my invited interview guests, and also from you, dear listeners. As I said earlier, do contact me and let me know your thoughts, criticism, and wishes. As I have told you before the interview with Benabel, there will be no news section and no reviews today. I will see what I can do about that in my next episode, due in about two weeks at the end of July 2017. But in any case, those sections and also new things will come back to Thoth Hermes from mid-August onwards. What is for sure is that the next episode which will be our number eight, will feature my dear friend and brother Greg Kaminsky. I am sure most of you know his wonderful podcast, Occult of Personality, which he has been presenting for over 11 incredible years already. It seems like generations of occultists owe Greg a lot of knowledge and the opening of new doors. His was one of the first podcasts I was listening to, and it is an extreme pleasure and honor for me to now, next to my own podcast, be Greg's co-host on Occult of Personality. So please come back to episode 8 
and learn more about Greg himself and one of his personal main interests, Pico di Mirandola. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Hope you have been able to learn new things and deepened your knowledge about things you already knew. As always, Wendy Rule's Night Sea Journey, which you can hear in the background, is closing this episode, and I will let you go. Take care, stay tuned, hear you soon.